0: Oh, Lord, it was your great name that spoke and everything came into being that is in being. For it is through you that all creation came forth. And Lord, even though man sinned against you, rebelled against your sovereign decrees, we have seen time and time again through Scripture where Even in the midst of judgment, we see salvation coming forth. But we see clearly displayed in Scripture that You are sovereign, that You are mighty, You are loving, true, and Your grace abounds, from Genesis to Revelation. So Father, as we kind of wrap up this series today, Lord, I pray that you will continue just to let us see kind of the big picture of your consistency and your love, your sovereignty played out again from, from beginning to to an eventual end. We thank you that you are in control. We trust you because you are in control. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Well, today, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Nothing controversial today, nothing confusing at all. I thought I'd get a few more chuckles than that, I guess. You know, in all seriousness, we have come to the, the end of our journey, uh, the final chapter of our journey through um, the story, the Chronicle of Redemption, where we have begun um, in an attempt to take um, a series that we're going to look at all the, the, the small stories of the Bible to see how they're kind of making one big overarching s- story try to see what the overarching story of Scripture is, the story of the Bible, uh, from creation to fall, redemption to restoration. And in the process, what we have done, whether we've noticed it or not, we have answered some of life's big questions along the way. Like, where did we come from? How did, what, what went wrong in this world? Why are things so messed up? and ultimately we're looking at how will what's wrong be made right how will this longing for justice that we have within us could be fulfilled and today we come to the book of revelation a book that excites some and quite frankly scares a lot of others a lot of us feel at times it's like jumping into the deep end of the pool and not just the deep end of the pool but a deep end that's in the midst of a hurricane where the waves are just piling on top of you one after another after another and and I'm not going to stand here today and say, and tell you say, hey, don't worry. The book of Revelation it's really easy because it's not. Uh, but it's also not as hard as a lot of people want to make it out to be. It's not a code that is needing to be deciphered where if we just come up with the right uh, code, configurations, configurations, then we're going to have it all figured out and it's all going to make sense and we're going to find all these hidden secret meanings. That's not what... Uh, the book of Revelation is. That's the wrong way to understand the book of Revelation. See, one of the reasons it's so hard to understand is because it's an apocalyptic writing. And you're like, what is an apocalyptic writing? An apocalyptic writing is a writing that uses a lot of symbolism to convey its message. And, And that's what makes it so hard just being honest, because what a lot of people end up doing is they try to find secret meaning in all the symbolism there. Let's let's find what this means. Let's find what that means. And and some of it does have meaning. But at the same time, um, I like to think about it this way. You think about how hard, how difficult it is to describe a spectacular sunset. How, how difficult it is to describe an awe-inspiring scene in nature or, or an emotional moment that you have, an experience that you have, and then you try to describe that with words. And you're left feeling like, ah, I just don't have the words to describe it. It just doesn't seem, the words just don't seem to do justice. And let's just be honest, there's things in, in life where it just, words just don't seem enough you ever felt that way but we try don't we and that's why things like like poetry and art and music that's why they exist because we're trying to convey something that we just can't put into words but by golly we're trying we're we're trying to convey it and so hold on to that because that's the style of writing john is using here and it's going to be important as we move forward but So is the context surrounding this book, which was originally a letter that was written to seven churches in Asia. And you can find those churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3, kind of listed out, kind of what specific things are being said to them. So one thing that we need to understand is we never need to forget that in every book, every letter throughout the Bible, it had an original audience that it was being written to and for. But the temptation that we often have is that we come to a a chapter, we come to a verse, we come to a book, and we immediately want to say, hey, what does that mean to me? What does it mean to me? And we want to jump straight there, but before we do, before we answer that question, we first need to understand, hey, what did it mean to the original audience? What did it mean to the original recipients of this letter? How would those receiving this letter of revelation, how would these seven churches have understood it? How would John on the island of Patmos have understood the content of this letter? See, at the time of writing this letter, it's around A.D. 95, John finds himself exiled on the island of Patmos. And now he's in the midst of experiencing persecution firsthand. The seven churches are not immune to it either. They're living under the brutal reign of the Roman emperor Domitian at this time. They're experiencing persecution. They're struggling. And just quite frankly, the overall outlook for the church does not look real strong at this point in time. So it's in the midst of all of this that we get God gives John a series of visions. And what these visions do is that they can be described as kind of God pulling back the curtain per se to to open John's eyes to see how everything is working for the good of the believer and for the glory of God kind of pulling it back and said okay i want you to kind of see what's going on in the big picture i want you to see behind the scenes here so in understanding the context we see that the primary point of of these visions is to encourage the believers here to to persevere even in the midst of unimaginable suffering to encourage believers to keep their perspective on the big picture not on the the temporary pains of this world but on the promises of God. And if we understand that, if we understand these things, I think we're going to see exactly how this book is applicable to each and every one of us in this room today. It's not a book to be scared of. It's a book to be encouraged by. So here's what we're going to do. As we bring this series to a close, as we land the plane here today, we're going to look at four images that kind of help summarize this letter of John's vision. Again, we're not looking at every detail. We're going to look at the big picture. So picking up in chapter four, first image that we're going to look at is the one that God is sovereign. It's a the theme we see played out through the entire Bible. That God is sovereign over Everything. And here in chapter 4, we see this this clearly displayed in the imagery that is shown in the throne of God. So picking up in verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now I'm just pause right there for a second because here's where we're going to start picking up on the symbolic language that, that's here. God and His glory being described as having the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow circling the throne and, and then there are the elders and the crowns and the lightning and the thunder and the, we, we've got creatures with six wings and all crazy amount of eyes here and this is where we're tempted to stop and, and ask things like, what, what does Jasper mean? What, is, what does carnelian mean? Like, I wonder what all these things mean. And we've got people looking for all kinds of secret meanings throughout this book. But just, just stop. Stop for a moment and think about it. And let's not overthink it. Because I think that's one of the things we have a tendency to do a lot of times. is going kind to of overthink what is, what's being conveyed. What is John describing here? Just look down in the text and say, what is John describing? The throne of God and the one seated on the throne. And if we can't do justice in our attempts to convey a sunrise or a sunset, how do you think John is going to describe the throne of God and the one seated on it in words? He's not going to come close, but he's going to do everything he can with the greatest imagery that he can to try to set forth the glory and the splendor of what he's seeing. Which should be our indication to realize that the jasper and the carnelian, they're not the focus. And neither are the creatures and neither are the elders. What's the focus here? It's the throne of God. It's the one who's seated upon the throne. And where all the attention is focused here is upon the throne. And what we see are these crazy creatures crying out day and night. Never ceasing to do what? Verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And every every time I read this, Every time that I come to this section of Revelation, my mind is immediately drawn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Where Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah the prophet has a vision. What's his vision of? It's a vision of the the Lord. High and lifted up. And what's important about that is that when Isaiah has this vision, it's who he doesn't see. He does not see King Uzziah. A king who had reigned for for roughly 50 years as sovereign king of the land. Everyone from from children to grandchildren, grandpas and grandmothers and parents would have all looked and seen King Uzziah. He is king. He is sovereign. But when, when Isaiah has this vision, he doesn't see King Uzziah. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees the Lord as all sovereign. And what else does he see? He sees these same six-winged creatures, and they're flying around the throne of God, circling the throne with two wings. They're covering their face because they cannot look upon the holiness of God. With two, they're covering their feet as an act of humility because they're in the presence of God and they're not worthy to be in the presence of God. And with two, they're flying around the throne. And all day and night, they're crying out to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In both pictures, Isaiah, here and back in Revelation, we got John seeing the throne of God right here. In verse 9, And wherever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders, what do they do? They fall down before Him who is seated on the throne. And what do they do? And worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast the crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So the first image that John is receiving here in chapter 4 is the image of God's sovereignty on clear display. The 24 elders are falling down before who? Who? Not one another. They're falling down before the one seated upon the throne. And what are they doing? They're worshiping Him. Who are they not worshiping here? They're not worshiping the Roman Emperor Domitian. That's who they're not worshiping. See, John's vision is reminding these early believers that the Lord alone is sovereign. Only his kingdom is going to stand forever. Yes, Emperor Domitian is powerful. Yes, he is oppressing. But he is not the one seated upon the throne. He does not win in the end. That's what these, these believers are hearing. This is intended to encourage and give confidence to these struggling churches to know, yes, it's tough right now, but it's not going to be this way forever. This is not how the story ends. Now for each and every one of us here today, what are we to do? Well, we need to replace Emperor Domitian with any leader that is named today. And the same thing holds true. The persecution, for example, that the Christians in North Korea and Syria are experiencing right now will not last forever. Those leaders, those regimes, they are not all sovereign. They think they are, but their reigns are going to come to an end. The laws being handed down from our highest courts, they do not have final say. They don't. The God of the Bible is sovereign over everything. Let that encourage you today, brothers and sisters. Let that encourage you. Let that shape your perspective. Even in the midst of persecution. Even in the midst of struggle. Even in the midst of uncertainty. Recognize today that God is on the throne and He's never leaving it. Which leads us to the reason we can trust in image number two. God will judge all sin justly. So as we turn to page, to chapter 5, we see a scroll being brought forth in verse 11. Then I saw in the right, verse 1, I'm sorry. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within it on the back, concealed on the seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So the question that we naturally have is, What is this scroll? What is this scroll that they're talking about here? And this scroll here contains all the, of God's purposes for history, including His purposes for judgment, including His purposes for making things right. But it's sealed, and it can't be opened. No one is found to take the scroll. No one is found to open the seals and bring the justice to this fallen world. No one is found to make this what's wrong in this world right. And this angel is crying out. He's saying, who has the power to defeat Satan and his demons? Who has the power to destroy sin and death? Who has the ability to reverse the curse that is upon creation? And you know what he hears? Silence silence, as we see in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, John is saying, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. It's a search of the entire universe that's taking place. And there is nothing but silence. And it brings joy to bitter, bitter weeping because if no one is found to open the scrolls, then sin and death will remain. The curse will never be broken. Justice will never be found. But in that moment of loud weeping, we look to verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. <laughs> the elder is clear in his words to John. He says, stop weeping. There's no reason for you to weep, John, because there is a Redeemer. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the long-awaited serpent crusher has conquered and because he has conquered he can open the scroll and the seven seals he can do this he, because he has defeated sin and death and all the forces of hell at the cross he can bring forth a long awaited judgment he can quench that insatiable thirst for justice that we have within us he can make what's wrong in this world right once and for all and only he can do this this can only be accomplished by Christ. So from chapter 6 all the way to, to chapter 20, what we see is a series of judgments just levied upon creation. With seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. The seven seals opening up the, God's judgments and decrees of judgment. The seven trumpets God proclaiming His judgments upon the world. And the, the seven uh, bowls God pouring out his judgment upon the world. And if you read this book and, and do so, I encourage you to, to do so. In fact, I encourage you to do so by, by reading it in its entirety. Like just to take time and don't just read a, a section or a verse, but to kind of take time to sit down and to read large chunks of it. You can read the whole thing in about an hour and a half, and it'll be an hour and a half well spent. And you're gonna, when you do this, you're going to notice some big things that are happening in these, in these chapters. It's lots of repetition and it's lots of, of increasing in intensity as it pertains to God's judgment being levied upon creation. It's just over and over again you're you're seeing God's judgment that's coming justly upon creation. You see God's judgment being described as a, a fierce thundering storm with all of God's enemies defeated and cast into the fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We need to pause there for just a moment because we, we hear the words all of God's enemies and we often want to look to this guy or that guy or that person over there or that person back there and we never want to look to ourselves. But we have to realize that apart from Christ every single person on the planet is an enemy of God. Every single one of us in this room deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment. These images here that are talking about hell, that are talking about judgment, that are to make us shudder at the dreadful reality of hell. There is nothing comforting in here. This is to make us fear the understanding of God's judgment. We cannot overstate the terrors of God's judgment. It is coming and it is deserved by every person on the planet. Yet it's here where I commonly hear people attempt to downplay the severity of God's judgment. Because eternal torment just sounds too severe. It doesn't seem appropriate. You know, maybe not for the Hitler types, but for for the mom who has been faithful, who loved her children, cared for them, been there for them, classified by this world in every single way as a good person, but she does not know Jesus. It just seems like it's too severe. The father who, who goes to every ball game recital is there with the kids, doing all kinds of things, even after being up all night, but does not know Jesus. Oh, seems so severe. A straight-A student, to role model, struck by a drunk driver, taken out in the prime of his life, but does not know Jesus. The person who has never heard the gospel, has never called upon the name of the Lord. It just seems so severe. In individuals like these, it seems so hard to comprehend such punishment being deserved or being just, but it is. Scripture is clear that it is. Yet I hear people all the time say, a loving God would never do something like that. A loving God would never, never do something like that. So what they end up doing are a host of different things, but either they deny God's judgment altogether. And in the process, they become practicing universalists, basically saying that everybody gets to go to heaven in the end. Again, maybe not the Hitler types, but I mean, really everybody else gets to go to heaven in the end. I mean, how many people do we hear like, preached into heaven at their funerals? I'm not saying that at somebody's funeral we need to like, say, hey, you're, they're going to hell. Um, there, there's ways to, to preach gracefully in those moments. But a lot of times pastors want to preach somebody into heaven who is definitely on their way to hell just to comfort a family. And that is not biblical and that is not faithful. The, hell, the, the, the reality of hell is real. It is something that we all deserve. And the second thing we see people doing is they deny the severity of God's judgment, which means they're picking and choosing what to believe. They're just kind of picking this and believe this, and they're wanting themselves to define what is just and what is unjust, and in the same process, what they end up doing is saying, whether they want to claim to do it or not, is they're claiming to take on the role of God themselves. That they want to be the lawmakers. They want to be the ones who are de- declaring what's right and what's wrong. And then yet even further, we have people who are, are taking the language of fire and torment and, and they're saying, well, it's merely symbolic language. And they're trying to, to make it not as bad as it appears. And they're trying to use that language and so, saying, oh no, it's that, but it's not nearly as bad. And let's assume that's true for a moment. Well, what's it symbolic of? What's eternal torment and fire symbolic of here? Well, it's not white sandy beaches and gentle rides down the Shenandoah. That's not what's being conveyed here. Think about it. If all the symbolism, all the beauty was unable to articulate the beauty and the holiness of God seated upon the throne, neither can it articulate the severity of God's judgment. Eternal fire is horrible but it still doesn't fully describe the severity of God's wrath upon sin. It doesn't. And it's coming. Whether we want to admit it or not, it's coming upon everyone who does not take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. It's coming upon everyone who does not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus And to understand why this is just, to understand why this is right, all we have to do is go back to to image number one. Go back to the image of the sovereignty of God. Grasp even a fraction of the holiness and the glory of God in comparison to, to the sin of man. And we recognize, like Isaiah did, when he beheld the glory of God in the throne room of God, he said, woe is me, A man of unclean lips. He could not look upon God because he recognized that he was a sinful man deserving of God's wrath. We are sinful people deserving of God's wrath. We need to recognize in looking at this that God's judgment is certain. It is horrible. And it is right. It is right. Every person throughout all of history deserves God's just judgment because every person throughout history has sinned and rebelled against the sovereign God of the universe. And that brings us to the third image and the hope of the nations. Because even in the midst of judgment, as we've seen all throughout the Scripture, we see salvation coming forth. In chapter four, we witness the incredible scene, the glory of God emanating from the throne, appearing like Jasper and Carnelian, the rainbow circling around, and the flashes of lightning, the peals of thunder, the elders and the creatures crying out, declaring the holiness and the greatness of God. And now our attention is drawn, like John's, to reflect upon this incredible scene, we now John's attention in chapter five, verse six, look where it's drawn and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain notice what John does not describe here he doesn't describe a mighty lion of the tribe of Judah nor an all conquering Davidic king what does he describe here a lamb standing as though it had been slain why? Because Jesus could not be the Lion of Judgment or the King of Glory unless He was first the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, what's taking place in this moment is John the Apostle beholding the Lamb who John the Baptist had declared and prophesied, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And now John the Apostle is beholding the Lamb. And what is this Lamb doing? What is the slaughtered Lamb of God doing? He is standing. <laughs> he is standing alive with the wounds of His crucifixion clearly visible, but alive. And what's He doing? He's Standing in victory. Where? Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. And then in verse 7, we see everything that John has been describing from the start of this vision in chapter 4 to the, coming to this climactic moment. It's a scene that all creation has been longing for, looking for since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. The ultimate goal of redemption is about to be seen. Paradise is about to be regained, Eden restored, and John is beholding the Lamb of God. As Jesus, verse 7, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, "'Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, "'for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God "'from every tribe and language and people and nation. "'And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, "'and they shall reign on the earth.' "'Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures "'and the elders, the voice of many angels,' And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. <laughs> and if that doesn't give you chills, if that doesn't get you excited, nothing in this book will. Because look what's taking place. The Lamb of God is boldly and confidently who's walking up to the throne. And what's he do? He takes the scroll. And then what happens? Praise breaks out throughout the entire universe. A spontaneous song right here. Why? Because it's the realization that the curse is about to be reversed. It's the realization that every name written in the Lamb's Book of Life is about to be saved. Will be saved. All of God's elect are going to be coming home. Every one that the Father has given to the Son will be saved. People comprised from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language. Guaranteed, 100%, going to happen. Now, think about that in light of the context of the time that it was written. Think about who had been receiving this letter. Think about John receiving this message while on the island of Patmos. Think about how comforting and encouraging this must have been to them to receive this reminder in a day when the church was small. The church was struggling. He was facing intense persecution. And you're being told with absolute certainty that the redeemed will one day include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language on the earth. You're being told with absolute certainty that the mission set forth in Acts 1-8 will not fail, no matter what. It's a reminder that no amount of persecution, no amount of church struggle No matter how much we on this earth mess things up, will stop Christianity from spreading to the ends of the earth. Nothing. And I don't know. I I pray. I pray this encourages you as much as it does me. I pray that it encourages you, realizing that nothing will stop the mission of God from being accomplished by the power of the Spirit of God. Absolutely nothing is going to stop this. And that leads us to the fourth image that John receives the promise of a new heaven and a new earth when all the redeemed are finally accounted for every last one God's promise to Abraham will find its completion the intimacy once found in the garden will be experienced once again God's people in God's place under God's rule as we read in Revelation chapter 21 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away For the former things have passed away. And with that, I want you to think back with me to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. What was the scene in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? A beautiful sinless garden. A, a, a garden that knew nothing of death, nor crying, nor mourning, nor, nor weeping, or pain. But then what happened? The fall in Genesis chapter 3 occurred. When God's people sinned, they disobeyed the sovereign decrees of God. And as a result, they were exiled from the garden. They were exiled from the presence of God. The intimate relationship that they once knew, they knew no more. But now here in Revelation 21, the curse is reversed. And the garden is being replaced by a city. A city of God comprised of the people of God. The city of God is comprised now of the people of God. A city where there will be no more death. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In this city the presence of sin will be no more. And the effects of sin will never be experienced again. Let that encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters. Because right now we know full well that we are experiencing the full effects of sin in this world. And maybe right now it may be a time of reprieve, but we know for in your life that you may know of people. We are praying for fellow church members, people outside of these walls. We know that the gravity of which sin takes upon this world and the horrible effects that it has. Understand that that will be no more in this city. We long for that day living as citizens of this world but realizing our citizenship is forever with the kingdom of God if we are in Christ. And in that city where we who are in Christ will dwell forever, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And notice how this city is described as the dwelling place of God. What what in our series does that remind you of? And think back to the Old Testament. Where was the dwelling place of God? What was the dwelling place of God? the tent and the temple, right? We see that clearly being placed. And the tent and the temple came with restrictions on who could enter and who couldn't and very, very restrictive. But here in Revelation 21, the city is described as having the same length and the same width, 12,000 stadia, a number of perfection, a number of completion. It's an image that would have triggered among John's readers the image of the holy of the holies, the, the place inside of the temple. A place in the temple where only the great high priest would be able to enter once a year, only after making an atoning sacrifice for his sin and the sins of the people. And it's here, seated upon the mercy seat, upon the ark of the covenant that we looked at. God would come down and he would meet with and dwell with his people through a mediator. But now, look what John does not see here. He doesn't see a temple. As John tells us in Revelation 21, verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. But now, even with no temple in the city, the image John's original readers would have had is still that image of the Holy of Holies. They've got in their mind not an image of a temple, but an image of the Holy of Holies, the most holy place inside the temple. And who's dwelling in the Holy of Holies? Is it just one priest? Is that us all who's there meeting with God? No, who's meeting there in the Holy of Holies? It's God and man, it's all the elect, it's every name written in the man, in the Lamb's book of life, meeting with God, dwelling with God. All believers are dwelling with God forever and ever. Let that sink in right now, brothers and sisters. Let this sink in right here because guess what we will do? Guess what we're going to do as we're dwelling with God in his presence? We're going to do what Moses longed to do but could not. Remember how he longed to see God's glory? He longed to see God's face and God said, "Uh -uh, you can't. And so, what did he do? He took him and he hid him in the cleft of the mountain, and he passed by with his hand, to kind of covering him because it was too much for him to see. But now, look in Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. Guess what we will get to do? We will see his face. We will see his face. And this is the prize. This is where we are in the midst of angst and we're in the midst of turmoil and we're wondering how, how it's going to be completed and we're wondering how, how all things are really working for our good and for God's glory. We keep our eyes focused on the problem. We keep our eyes focused on the fact we are going to see the face of God. We who are sinfully woeful, deserving of God's judgment, deserving of God's wrath, who have taken shelter under the blood of Christ are going to be able to enter into the presence of God and remain there forever and ever and ever. We will join with all of creation singing holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. That's a prize. That's our focus, not not the mansions, not the streets of gold, not crowns, uh, not reunions with loved ones, but God's people dwelling in God's place, in His presence, resting under His rule, seeing His face forever. So as we come to the conclusion today, not only this sermon, but of this series, all Scripture is doing one thing, It's pointing us to Jesus. From from Genesis, in the midst of judgment, what did we see? Salvation coming forth in the promise of Genesis 3.15. The promises of a serpent crusher. And we longed and we waited all throughout the Scriptures, pointing over and over again, He's coming, He's coming. And then He came and He conquered on the cross. And then what did He do? He rose from the dead. And then what did He promise? He says, I am coming back. As we see at the end, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And John responds saying, amen, come Lord Jesus. Is that our cry today? Are we longing for the day that we're going to be able to see him face to face? Again, I don't know about you, but this is what gives me comfort not sentimentalism and not fanciful imaginations, versions of of heaven and of Jesus, but the truth. The truth that knowing that God is sovereign. I deserve God's judgment. But by the grace of God, I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And as a result, I, along with every one of you and every believer throughout all of eternity, we'll get to spend eternity. Forever and ever. We can't, That's a word that we're using to describe something that we can't even begin to describe. Think about that. We can't comprehend that. We're going to spend all of it seeing His face. And what we're going to do now is we're going to come to the table. If you are in Christ today, if you are treasuring Christ, you have repented of your sins and believed in Him, you are welcome to come to this table. And what we're going to do is we come to this table is, is we're going to be thanking Him. We're going to be remembering all of what He has accomplished, all of what He did. And we're also going to be remembering the promise that He will come back. See, see the bread is, is symbolizing, reminding us of His body. The cup is reminding us of His blood that was shed for us. And as you come, as you feel led, you you come and you take of this and you go back to the seat and and take of that, whether with uh, your family, whether friends, as a whole church together. We're just going to sit and we're going to partake of these elements. If you are not in Christ, if you don't know what it means to treasure Christ above this world, you don't know what it means to repent and believe, then we would ask you to refrain. Do not come to this table. Do not take of these elements because the scripture would say it would be as you eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And we've looked clearly or at least momentarily at what that is. But for those of you who come, come with celebration. Come with thankful hearts. Realizing that we don't deserve this. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. One. But Christ makes it possible. Come today beholding the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Become today beholding the God who stands in victory. With arms out wide, nail pierced hands, sides of the crucifixion clearly visible, but standing in victory. Come to Him today. And if you do not know Christ, repent of your sin. Believe upon him today. Oh Lord, we thank you. Thank you that your promises hold true. We thank you for not giving us the judgment we deserved. But for sending your son to to live the life that we were meant to live. but failed so miserably. Thank you for dying the death that we deserve to die. And in rising from the dead, giving us a hope and a future we don't deserve to have. Oh Lord, we're thankful for Jesus. Oh Lord, let us never lose sight of understanding that you alone are sovereign. That you are in control of all things and are working them for our good and for your glory. Encourage us today by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Prepare your hearts and come as you feel led.